The following Dharma talk was given by Jody Hojin Kimmel at the Zen Center of New York City. Hojin Sensei is the abbot of the Zen Center and head priest at Zen Mountain Monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. The Old Woman's Enlightenment from the Hidden Lamp collection of 25 centuries of women's enlightenment stories. This is Japan, 18th century. An old woman went to hear Master Hakuen give a lecture. He said, your mind is the pure land and your body is Amida Buddha. When Amida Buddha appears, mountains, rivers, forests, and fields all radiate a great light. If you want to understand, look into your own heart. The old woman pondered Hawkwind's words day and night, waking and sleeping. One day, as she was washing a pot after breakfast, a great light flashed through her mind. She dropped the pot and ran to tell Hawkwind, Amida Buddha filled my whole body. Mountains, rivers, forests, and fields are shining with light. How wonderful, she danced for joy. What are you talking about, Hawkwind asked. Does the light shine up your asshole? (laughs) Small as she was, she gave him a big push and said, I can see you're not enlightened yet. They both burst out laughing. I don't know why I picked this one. (laughs) Um, I guess I was feeling a little irreverent myself about what's holy and what's profane these days. So this ongo, we've been examining and studying intimate language, intimate expression, and art practice. And I'll give Takaz Tanahashi's paragraph on Mitsugo, intimate language. When you know yourself, you know intimate action. Thus, Buddha ancestors can thoroughly actualize this intimate heart and intimate language. Intimate means close and inseparable. There is no gap. Intimacy embraces Buddha ancestors. It embraces you. It embraces the self. It embraces action. It embraces generations. It embraces merit. It embraces intimacy. And we're also working with the mind slogans of Atisha, a 12th century Tibetan teacher that I've, I've introduced. These are meditations, a set of meditations, 59 of them, that we can bring into our daily life practice as disciplines of many things that we do that obscure the light, obscure the light coming through and bring on more light, more awareness. So some of the, for those of you who are new, some of these slogans are, there's 59 of them, as I said, don't ponder others, work with the greatest defilements first, don't be so predictable, 
don't malign others, don't wait in ambush. But these don'ts are not like, they're yeses, like do this. Like don't do this, this is unskillful, it makes us suffer. Do this, practice this. So we have to, we take them up to recognize what we do do. That sounds terrible. Um, but um, that we can um, take it and bring it to our path, what we recognize as being unskillful and weaken that and become more skillful with ourselves and set thoughts free and understand what, what's happening. Um, in a sense, when we practice them, we're turning the light around is something that we often hear. To tame, uh, Judy Leaf writes, tame and transform our mental afflictions and emotions as we are practicing uprooting the source of our suffering and our ego fixations. There, the mind is more radiant than anything else can be. But because, one teacher calls it uh, counterfeits, um, afflictions, obscurations, that radiance is dimmed. So we've all seen the sun and the moon, especially a bright moon night when the clouds are rushing past and for a moment it gets really dark. And it's still the same, shining just the same way, but the clouds obscure that brightness just for moments. And that's kind of like what happens within us. There's these afflictions, these ways we think and perceive that go unquestioned and bring a kind of a cloudiness, but that moon, that radiance is always shining. And so we can observe that. And one teacher said, we shouldn't go thinking that the moon goes after the clouds. Rather, the clouds come drifting along and obscure and touch this primal light that's always radiantly shining. As meditators, when we know this, we can release these counterfeits, analyzing them shrewdly or compassionately inquiring into them if they're true and letting them flow on. So that's the power of working with the slogans. Um, as they develop the mind, and we see, we learn more about causes and conditions, obscuring beliefs, and set them free. And they won't be able to reach into this primal mind because the bridge making the connection to them has been seen through. That's all that happens. New neuropathways are created. You know, samsara is using the same suffering. When we feel suffering, we turn to the same suffering. And this is leaping out of that rut. You know how you ride a bike and you're like when it's well worn and you, if you want to get out, you got to sort of like jump it. <laughs> well, that's what we do with our habit mind. We just get in a rut. And this is like a leap. We may not w- know where we're leaping, but it takes something to say, not that. That's, I know where that goes. It's unskillful. And weaken that and just open up to what might be possible. And I found this nice 
It says, even though the mind may then still come in contact with our habits and preoccupations, it's more like a bead of water rolling off a leaf. Like that. And then I found this nice quote from Krishnamurti. He says, from awareness comes attention. Attention flows from awareness. When in that awareness there is no choice, no personal choosing, no experiencing, merely observing. And to observe, you must have in mind a great deal of space. A mind that is caught in ambition, greed, envy, in the pursuit of pleasure and self-fulfillment, with its inevitable sorrow, pain, despair, and anguish, such a mind has no space in which to observe, to obtain, to attend. It is crowded with its own desires, going round and round in its own backwaters of reaction. You cannot attend if your mind is not highly sensitive, sharp, reasonable, logical, sane, healthy, without the slightest shadow of neuroticism. The mind has to explore every corner of itself, leaving no spot uncovered, because if there is a single dark corner of one's mind, which one is afraid to explore, from that springs illusion. It is only in the state of attention that you can be a light unto yourself. Then every action of your daily life springs from that light, every action, whether you're doing your job, cooking, going for a walk, mending clothes, or what you will. The whole process is meditation. So the Buddha Dharma has a language of light um, in expressing our natural state. Daida Roche used to call it our ground of being. Our consciousness before the emergence of active mental processes. Sometimes it's called the unbounded state, enlightened state, radiance, being a lamp, luminous, brightly shining mind, splendor, brilliant mind of clear light. So we hear this in the in the language of Buddha Dharma. So in this koan, an unnamed old woman, which often appears in Zen encounters, some, an unnamed old woman on the side of the road, might init- we might initially dismiss, but as the story unfolds, we realize that they possess a very cutting wisdom that often takes what is often a male central central player by surprise. Cut them up. (laughs) And many um, of the records of monastics of Japan and China are uh, monastics that are full of themselves, right? with their views and their opinions, and this old, old woman will skillfully take them apart, <laughs> skewer them. So um, the old woman in this koan 
um, may have been a follower of Pure Land Buddhism, because um, the devotees pray to Amitabha uh, Buddha, the Buddha of Infinite Light, who will assist one to be reborn in a pure land, leaving the suffering of this life behind, entering Amitabha Buddha's radiant light, radiant realm in the Western land. And this is called Pure Land Buddhism. It developed in the 5th century in China and then took root in Japan in about the 12th or 13th century. So she went to Master Hakuen to hear a lecture and heard the intimate language spoken. Your mind is the Pure Land and your body is Amida Buddha. When Amida Buddha appears, mountains, rivers, forests, and fields all radiate a great light. If you want to understand, look into your own heart. That's what she heard. A little about Hakuin. He was uh, born in 1686 and died in 1769. He was a writer, artist, priest, Zen teacher, and he helped revive um, Rinzai Zen in Japan. He was known to be ferocious and demanding with his monastics and at times very irreverent dealing with his ordained trainees. He cared deeply for peasants who lived around Hara, which is at the mount of mount, at the foot of Mount Fuji where his temple was, and he was able to make uh, the teachings relevant to the villagers. He really cared about the people in the neighborhood and their well-being and their awakening. And many of them, of course, their lives were filled with hardship, poverty, sickness, and early death. But he really tended to them, not just the monastics. He taught the that direct knowledge of the truth is available to all, even those who are considered to be lower in caste. And that a moral life must accompany religious practice. So he regarded bodhicitta, bodhicitta's the awakened heart-mind that works for the benefit of others, as the ultimate concern of Zen and Zen training. And many of his writings and paintings were really sharp in his social and um, spiritual commentary. He could be, as I said, very irreverent, poking fun at our foibles, our dark, shadowy sides. But he was never poisonous. I've seen a lot of his work. And his paintings, he could paint like it was a child painting, or it was like a professional, very precise, um, well-trained artist. So he had a, a real wide range of expression. His light language was much more to um, try and not let make us take ourselves so seriously, 
take the Dharma seriously, but not yourself. And he made no separations of the holy and the profane. So he had a he had one um, image that he drew um, was a, a courtesan. So somebody's on their knees with their butt in the air, and it's called um, curing hemorrhoids. And she had a moxa on a burning on a stick, and he wrote the caption: "It seems that he has hemorrhoids, so I give him a little bit of fire." So. The old woman must have been really shocked and somersaulted to hear Hawkwind's words, your mind is a pure land and your body is Amida Buddha. What? What? What is he saying? How could it be that my mind, with all its craziness, its delusion, my messy thoughts, my body aches, my greed, that that's Amida Buddha. So he's also speaking to us. What? What? All the things that I do in my head, that this is the pure land, that this is my body and mind is the pure land. All my fears, all the traumatic events that I hold in my body, don't they define me? So probably the most frequently used words in Zen training are really trust yourself. Really trust yourself. Which points to the already existing radiance, the heart of wisdom and perfection, our enlightened nature. Really trust yourself. Daida Roshi always would say to everyone, Really trust yourself. I mean, those of you that knew him, how many talks did he end with? Give life to the Buddha. Really trust yourself. In fact, he has a film called Really Trust Yourself. (laughs) But do we? Do we trust our zazen? And as it extends into our life, into our everyday activities, What is the whole body mind of trust that each of us take up? On the other side, what's it like when we don't trust? When there's a part of us holding back? We need to question that as well. How do we refuges to unreservedly throw ourselves into what we're doing, even though we don't fully understand what we're doing. We don't know if we're doing it right or appreciate the nature of trust. How do we do that? In Hakuin's Song of Zazen, the verse begins, sentient beings are fundamentally Buddhas. And then he ends with, This very place is the lotus land of purity. This very body is the body of the Buddha. In another translation, this earth we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. 
So until we understand that, we will keep seeking it, sometimes far away. We chanted this morning, when you walk the way, it is not near, it is not far. If we are deluded, we are mountains and rivers away from it. I was thinking about, um, this just came up, this old woman by the side of the road. Um, A few of us were at the monastery after last session, and we were finishing up (laughs) a pottery firing, a raku. And uh, the kiln was loaded. It was was getting towards temperature. If you know raku, you have to pull the pots out hot, and you have to get it at a certain moment. And we were inside this building, kind of getting ready. And we went in, and we came out like a few minutes later, and there's a a woman in a car in a ditch right in front of the studio. Like, and there's, there's nowhere to go. There's a bathhouse in front of her. And we're like, how did she get here? And it's pouring, too. I have to add that. So there she is, and, and she's got her radio on. She's talking on her cell phone, and she's in a ditch. And we, she wasn't there two seconds ago. And we were like, what is this, the old woman by the side of the road, right? Here she is. We're all like, and, and we have to get the stuff out of the kiln. And I said, excuse me, can you just turn your radio off and sit tight? We're going to pull some pots out of a kiln. She says, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And she, we went and did our thing, and, and Grant was there. He went down, and he said, do you want me to get someone? I said, yeah, get Seku. Get, he's our work supervisor. See if you can find him. He happens to be in the men's locker room with a bag of chains talking to someone about towing. <laughs> right? So he says, I got one for you. She's up at the clay studio. So she gets pulled out. We're pulling the pots out, and it's pouring. And that was the old woman by the side of the road. <laughs> and we just, she left, everything cleared up. And we're like, that just happened? Where did she drop in from? <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful. But um, there's an uh, expression that the Buddha taught called Athadipa, which is you are the light. And Sherry Chayat Roko brings this up in her commentary um, on this koan in the uh, Hidden Lamp. And Athadipa is said to be the actual words of the Buddha in his Pali language that he spoke to his disciples while he was dying. And the basic translation we have is Atta is self and Dipa is light. And the next word is Viharatha, expresses their identity. So what he's saying is dwell You are the light itself. So what does it mean to assert the identity of self and light? We hear some people speak of an inner light, like there's some kind of spark of divine inside us, or our true nature is somehow buried inside our everyday self. I don't know. It's not the message I get from the Buddha. To me, he's saying something more like, you have 
something more than you have a light inside. He's saying, you are it. You are the light. It's not inside somewhere. It's your whole being is light. How can we understand light if light is something we can't ordinarily grasp, literally grasp? Light is formless and boundaryless, is empty of anything particularity. Ordinarily, we don't see the light itself. We see objects that are lit by light. It's only by its interaction with things, its reflection, that we know it's there. The self we usually think of is just the opposite, that we are bounded by our skin, shaped by our particular individual identity. So to hear, you are the light, is something that may challenge who we are, who we think we are. Trust yourself or take refuge. Buddha is saying, this realization of the self as light, this very body is the body of light. Isn't there no self? What's happening here? The Buddha, I found, was careful to classify questions according to how they should be answered, based on how helpful they were to gaining awakening. Some questions deserved a categorical answer, one that holds true across the board. Some he answered analytically, redefining or refining the terms before answering. Some required counter-questioning to clarify the issue in the questioner's mind. But if the question was an obstacle on the path, the Buddha put it aside. And then it says this. When Vashagota, the wanderer, asked him point blank whether or not there is a self, the Buddha remained silent which means, in this case, that the question has no helpful answer. As he later explained to Ananda, to respond either yes or no to this question would be to side with opposite extremes of wrong view. Some argue that the Buddha didn't answer with no because Vashagota wouldn't have understood the answer. There's another passage where the Buddha advises all the monks to avoid getting involved in questions such as, what am I? Do I exist? Do I not exist? Because they lead to answers like, I have a self, and I have a no self, both of which are a thicket of views, a writhing of views, a contortion of views that get in the way of awakening. I thought that was interesting. I remember doing a retreat once in the city um, when we were on 23rd Street. And um, I gave them um, a visual koan to work with and drawing, making love with light. First, you sit with a feeling of love, not what you think love looks like. What does it feel like when you feel love? What does it feel like? And you can make that contact. You can think of a person that brings that to you or a place or a thing. 
Trumpa used to say, everyone loves something, even if it's a tortilla chip. Because sometimes love is a very crunchy word, a crunchy feeling. And we, we just, and he says, you can enter with a tortilla chip. If you love them, there it is. And to sit with that and then use a quality of light, make love with light, use a quality of light to express it. So everyone went off, they sat, they made contact with the feeling of love. And then they began to, we were using charcoal, black and white, and the whole range of values. So she came back, and we did creative audience. Everyone is a creative response, not a critical response, but you take a journey into the person's work, and you see what it feels like from the outside and then entering into their work. You take a journey. It's guided. And so we did her piece. She did a little, look like a little terrace outside we had at the temple on 23rd Street, a little round banister. And so I was guiding them to say, what is it? Make you feel, sorry for the cockroach walking by. (laughs) Don't worry, he likes Dharma. (laughs) Um. Okay, back to my story. (laughs) Um, I just saw everybody's feet go up, my soul. Um, So we did her piece. And one woman was saying, oh, I feel a close... enveloped, I feel held, and she stopped. I said, what? And she says, no, I'm embarrassed. This is ridiculous. Thank you, Yunin. (laughs) Just let him under your cushion. (laughs) He's chilling, okay. So... The woman says, I don't know. She says, it's ridiculous. I got the aroma of Indian food. And the artist gasped. Her feeling of love was for her home, which was above an Indian restaurant. So who are we? How does that happen? So, what is what is this old woman showing us? Thank you. Tell him next next discourse he'll be allowed in. <laughs> That if we can find the light in our everyday life, in our multitasking, in our what seems very fractured at times, with this one continuous thread of radiance that we all possess, bravely plunging in and training the mind with all that arises, keeping the aspiration of practice, that this is what I'm practicing, 
whatever's arising right now, that's what we're practicing. Keeping mindfulness, keeping awe, inquiry, present, all day and all night. This old woman pondered the words of Hakuin, day and night, waking, sleeping, working. If you want to understand, look into your own heart. That maybe while this old woman was simply doing her tasks, washing a pot, she was completely absorbed in that statement. Your mind is the pure land, and your body is Amida Buddha. And she experienced, which is often the case with breakthrough, the actuality of what those words were. Until that, then it was a promise. And then it burst through all her obscurations filled with joy of her enlightenment, feeling the endless dimensions of that light within and without, she ran to Hakuin, who immediately tested her. What are you talking about? Does the light shine up your asshole? One commentary said, words crass enough to shake any realization that wasn't genuine. His compassionate irreverence shining through. But is it? His question does the light shine up your asshole? It's kind of like the modern-day slang to tell someone off or to shove it. Stick it where the light doesn't shine. In this case, Hakuin is planting a hook, isn't he, to expose any duality. Amitabha's realm, this realm. Does the light shine up your asshole? Wait a minute, what? What is sacred? What is profane? Testing this old woman's insight. Daito Roshi would say, in the profane, nothing is sacred, but in the sacred, nothing is profane. There's a koan called Yunman Shitstick. It's one of the first koans I heard when I went to the monastery. I thought, I'm in the right place. A little irreverence here. Once a monastic asked Yunman, what is Buddha? And Yunman responded, dried shit stick. So what happens to you? What happened to you when you heard that line? Does the light shine up? Shine up your asshole? Did you go like, whoa, what's she talking about? What is Buddha? Shit stick. So if you're holding on to any idea of what Buddha is or is not, the teacher will see if your realization is genuine. Are you making that profane? Is Buddha holy? What is Buddha? If all things everywhere is our Buddha, is Buddha, what are we doing? What are we including? What are we not including? The old woman responded like a lioness and with confidence that comes with genuine insight. Pulling the tiger by his whiskers, she gave Hakuin a big push. 
I can see you're not enlightened yet. And they burst out laughing, mirroring each other in joyful recognition. Buddha held up a flower. Maya Kayashapa smiled. What was happening in that intimate language? What was the recognition? Oh, that's a beautiful flower. Really? I remember once at a staff meeting with Dido. Dido had heard um, something he did, that somebody responded to a caller in a way that he didn't like. And so he was um, by a staff member. So he was reprimanding us in this meeting. And he says, if I catch any of you doing something like that, I will cut your fingers off. I know this sounds vulgar. That's Dido. But he was trying to teach us something. So I don't know what possessed me, but I folded my fingers down. And I said, we would never do anything like that, Dido. And we both burst out laughing. He nearly choked. But many times it would be wrung out of Dokusan working on koans. I knew my insight wasn't clear. And I was so scared to make the fresh response. I was unable to make a leap, just really crimped by my ideas of how I should answer, what I thought the answer was, those clouds going over the moon all this fear I had in me about the right response. And I kept moving away from that direct, spontaneous action. My light was scattered, but all there. We come, all come to practice seeking some refuge from our suffering. Buddha says, seeing the self as light is that refuge. Nothing else can provide a true refuge from our suffering. Dhamma Deepa, the Dharma is light. The Dharma is both the word we use for the Buddhist teaching and for reality itself. Each transitory moment is a Dharma. Reality is light, insubstantial, boundaryless. The teaching is not fixed, a not fixed set of beliefs or doctrines just the realization of each moment's impermanence. That's followed by Dhamma, Saran, Sarana, Sarana. Don't look for something permanent or separate to shield you from life's suffering. Each moment impermanent, empty, life as it in fact is, the only teacher. Trust this reality. Don't trust anything else. And we learn from the Parinirvana Sutra, at the end of his life, Buddha said, you are crying. His disciples were around him crying because he was dying. And they never asked him to stay. And he says, too late. (laughs) I'm going. He says, you are crying because you have not heard me yet. I have been telling you again and again, Don't believe me, but you have not listened because you have believed in me and now I am dying. Your whole structure is falling apart. Had you listened to me, had you created a light into your being rather than becoming knowledgeable through me, if you had experienced your own self, 
there would be no need to cry. And we took up that line because there was like, there's a lot there. What is that crying, right? I'll end with the last verse of Hakuin's Song of Zazen. The pure land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And if we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self. Our own self is no self. We go beyond ego and pass clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three. Straight ahead runs the way. Our form now, being no form, is going and returning. We never leave home. Our thought now, being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? Where is their lack? Peace is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of the Buddha. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats, and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.